Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me on a special episode of Living History on what is a very sad day, the death of Queen Elizabeth II. You can't quite believe it after 70 years on the throne. Just an extraordinary reign. And even though I think it was obviously inevitable that eventually she would pass on, I think it's come as a shock to everyone. And it's just a very sad day, regardless of your thoughts about the role of the monarchy or Australian republics and the rest of it. I think it's, uh, you know, we all had a lot of respect for the, the wonderful work the Queen had done over the last 70 years, and it's just an extraordinary time on the throne. And so to commemorate her life and the passing of the Queen and a new king, we're going to bring you a couple of special episodes in the coming days. So I'm actually on my way to Europe, uh, so I'll be I'll be live over there as, as things unfold over the next couple of weeks. But in the meantime, we thought we'd bring you a couple of special interviews, a couple of special episodes, and we wanted to begin with a, a revisit of a, an episode I recorded a couple of years ago. Three years ago, in fact, the last time I was in London, I was fortunate to have a private tour of Kensington Palace, one of the royal palaces, and I thought it was fitting today of all days when we spoke in that episode about Queen Victoria and her long reign to talk about the other queen, the other queen who had a much longer reign than Queen, even Queen Victoria, and uh, and who uh, whose passing today I think has touched all of us. So please enjoy this episode of Living History, this special dedication to the passing of the Queen as I visit Kensington Palace. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History, coming to you live from London and this is something I'm really looking forward to. I'm standing in the gorgeous rooms of Kensington Palace and joining me to show me around and to convey some of the history of this magnificent building is Meredith Crosby. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. We're standing in rooms very uh, very closely uh, associated with Queen Victoria, which is fitting because we're, this year is the 200th anniversary of her birth, I believe. So a very fitting time to be in the place where she was born and where she spent much of her life. Can you just tell us a little bit about the significance of this to the story of Queen Victoria? Yes, so we're very excited this year. As you said, it is the 200th anniversary of her birth here at Kensington Palace. So we are trying to tell this really intimate story of her childhood um, because she did spend the first 18 years of her life here at Kensington and here in these rooms specifically. Um, so we'll just go through. I'll tell you a little bit about um, yeah her childhood, some of the family drama, some of the struggles that she had, as all teenage girls do, um, but compounded by that knowledge that she then was going to inherit the throne and become queen. She also then found out she became queen here at Kensington as well. So for those of us who don't know, 
what was um, how was Victoria's ascension to the throne? What was her family connection? How did she end up being queen? So she is a part of the Hanoverian dynasty. So she's directly descended from George I, who came over from Germany um, to take the throne in um, 1714. Um, so she is, you know, going down that line. We had George I, George II, George III. Um, she is a granddaughter of his. Um, so um, her father was Edward, the Duke of Kent. So one of the many, many children of George III and Charlotte. Um, and he technically should have inherited the throne because his two older brothers, George IV and William IV, didn't have any surviving heirs. But sadly, Victoria's father died when she was just eight months old. So that meant she was then the heir to her uncles. And how long has Kensington Palace been part of the royal estate? Um, It's been a royal residence since the early 1690s when it was first built by William and Mary. So they were part of the earlier Stuart dynasty. Um, They then passed it on to Queen Anne, Mary's younger sister. And then when she died, it then passed, of course, into the hands of the next dynasty, the Hanoverians. Um, So pretty much since the 1690s. Um, Victoria's children then also started to live here as well, other minor members of the royal family. Um, But she opened up the state apartments to the public in 1899. So they've been open ever since. Wow, that's astonishing and we think of um i always think of the royals as being closed away and locked behind doors in huge palaces but in the in the 1800s she was allowing people to come through kensington palace yes just at the end around 1899 um the parks were starting to be open to the public as well so kensington gardens then connects into hyde park um so you could see it definitely um but the first visitors were allowed in in 1899 um and yep we've just been so excited to share all the amazing history that's happened here um and additionally um, a lot of visitors come because the part of the palace that's still private is still occupied. It's still lived in um, by other family members of the Queen, so some of her cousins, and William and Kate are here as well. We're just hearing noise from a uh, beautiful, what I assume, is it a doll's house we're standing in front of? It is a model of Kensington Palace, yep. So we're seeing, and basically doll's house form, the rooms that Victoria used. So tell us about this room. We're going to do a walk through these uh, these apartments that uh, that Victoria knew so well. Firstly, my first question is, is this as she would have known it in her day? Yes, largely. So our curators worked really hard to try and recreate the interior design of the 1820s and 30s. Um, So down to the very quite spectacularly colored carpets, um, the really busy wallpaper designs as well, the gilding, um, the trim work and the wainscoting. um, They've really worked very hard to make it look like what Victoria and her mother would have recognized. And so what would this room have been back in Victoria's day? Um, Kind of a greeting room, a lounge. Um, We're not entirely sure what they used each room for. It could have been a series of different living rooms, salons, um, studies as well. Um, We'll go through one of the rooms is where we know Victoria did have her tutoring lessons. Um, So we're not 100% sure about this room, um, but we know it would have been quite comfortably furnished. Um, Portraits of her family members, especially her father, um, who her mother was in quite deep mourning for. Um, And we do actually have one of the first items that we think Victoria ever wore as a baby, and they are black baby shoes. Wow, I'm just looking at these now. That's uh, extraordinary. Baby shoes worn by Victoria, 1819 to 1820. Just wonderful. Where, where did these items come from? Were they discovered, hidden in a back room, and then and brought out, or have they always been part of the royal collection? 
A number of the objects were still kept here at Kensington. Um, her mother and Victoria's governess, Baroness Layson, um, tried to save things as mementos from Victoria's childhood. They were then probably packed away in storage here at Kensington and somewhat forgotten when she then moved to Buckingham Palace after she became queen. Um, but Victoria herself was quite nostalgic about her childhood and actively sought to you know, find all of these objects and mementos and make sure they were preserved. Do we have a record of what Victoria thought of her time? in Kensington Palace, what she felt about living here. Did she enjoy living in this, in this place or was it uh, some, something a bit alien to her? You see her attitude change quite a bit, um, pretty much depending what she's going through at the time. Um, so early on, she was quite resentful towards her mother um, because of that quite tense relationship between her mother and the King, William IV, and also the relationship between her mother and Sir John Conroy, who was her mother's comptroller private secretary. Victoria thought the two of them were really ganging up against her quite a lot of the time. Um, So she had negative feelings, I think, towards that aspect of it. But she did look back fondly on playing with her dolls um, and her dogs as well. She was really fond of all of her pets, especially one of her first dogs was Dash. Um, She became quite attached to them, um, as well as her older half-sister, Feodora. They played a lot here as children. Um, So a mixture of fond memories and then a little bit of resentment, I think. I should also point out as we walk through these rooms that members of the public can come down and, and, and see these rooms just as we are. So I strongly recommend if you're going to be in London that you come down and do this because it really is quite extraordinary. So we've just come into a slightly larger room, Meredith, which um, has a very different feel about it to the first one. What's this room? And tell us about this one. In this room, we tell the story of the princess at play. So like I was saying, how um, very attached she became to her toys and her dolls. Um, That was a result of uh, the so-called Kensington system that her mother imposed on the household, which basically meant Victoria had quite a lonely childhood. She didn't really have many friends her own age growing up um, because her mother wanted to protect her from what she saw as the vices of um, her uncle's court. Um, So she spent most of her time probably in this room just playing with her dolls, um, and we have an actual dollhouse that she used over here. Um, We also know that she created many of the dolls herself, um, the costumes as well, and they represent some of her favorite ballerinas, ballet dancers, um, opera singers as well, because those were the only time she really left the palace was to occasionally go to the theater or the ballet, which she absolutely loved. I love the artifacts that are in this room. They're they're so intricate. They're they're so of their time. And I've noted as we've walked through that there's audiovisual technology that's being used as well you've obviously gone to great efforts to try and tell this story in a way that will connect with people and that will engage with members of the public who obviously have little knowledge of what it was like to be a royal 200 years ago yeah we're trying to you know in a sense bring her back to earth show her as this you know sweet little child playing on the floor with her dolls um we also do um want to involve families and young visitors as well so we've got a toy box here with replica victorian toys that everyone can come and play with um and we have a very cute uh simulation of one of her dogs dash um who would have been you know running through these rooms playing with victoria and are these portraits on the walls um members of the royal family relatives of victoria Yes, so we've got, of course, a portrait of Dash himself. Um, And over here, we've got Victoria as a young girl, um, her older half-sister, Feodora, and her older half-brother, Carl, or Charles. Um, They were from her mother's first marriage. So her mother was married previously. She was a German um, noblewoman, a princess. Um, Her first husband died. She then was married to Victoria's father. 
Edward, the Duke of Kent. Um, so Victoria was quite, quite close with her older half-sister, not as close with Carl because he had to stay back in Germany. Um, but so, yeah, Victoria and Feodora were quite close until Feodora was then married, um, which did happen here at Kensington as well, and then she moved back to Germany as well. So Victoria did feel a bit more isolated after that. And just behind us here, we've got this magnificent bust, Victoria, age nine, just the the intricate work that goes into some of these pieces in the palace. It's just extraordinary. This portrait's really, yeah, quite extraordinary. It's very delicate, as you said. It is one of the earliest depictions we have of Victoria in sculpture. Um, So we have quite a few portraits, uh, painted portraits of her, but this one is special because, yeah, the, the sculpture is quite rare. Not to be rude to her or anything, but quite a beautiful young lady, quite different from the uh, imposing figure we saw later in her reign. Yes, she was described as quite sweet, um, a little bit spoiled. Um, She does have the characteristic really large blue Hanoverian eyes and the slightly large uh, Hanoverian nose as well. Um, But yeah, quite round cheeks. Um, When she was born, she was described as being plump as a partridge. (laughs) Excellent. Meredith, we just come over to a case on the far side of the room which appears to have sketches in it. What, What are we looking at here? So these are Victoria's, um, some of her earliest sketchbooks, actually. So she had quite um, good tutors in history, languages, different subjects like that, but also in art, um, which she took to really naturally. She was very skilled. Um, One of her earliest tutors was Richard Westall. So this is his sketchbook side by side with Victoria's. And I always find it hard to tell whose is whose. Um, And she started tutoring with him when she was only eight. Um, So she really was quite a natural, very skilled. Later on, she and Albert, who is also a skilled artist, um, would often do portraits of their children. I, I see what you mean. It's, it's really fine work. It's, it's representative of this lost age, isn't it, of art and culture and creativity that we, we, we don't really have as much of anymore. But it seems that everyone back in this time had some sort of hidden talent or hidden skill that they, uh, they could bring out in the most obscure ways. Absolutely, um, especially you know, higher status ladies and gentlemen were expected to be accomplished, as they called it, um, in not just the regular school subjects that we would think of today, but art, music, singing, playing other instruments, um, dancing and fencing as well for the gents. So this room, we tell the story of Victoria's um, tutoring, her training specifically um, in all of those academic subjects. Um, But we also focus on the Kensington system and how that affected her upbringing. Um, So her mother and Conroy came up with a system of rules. They they did want to protect Victoria. Um, They were concerned for her well-being. Several tragedies had befallen earlier heirs to the throne. Um, So they were looking after her. But you can see how that idea of protection then goes very quickly into control. Um, So Victoria essentially had no privacy at all for the first 18 years of her life. She always had to be accompanied by a servant, her governess, or her mother, even when she was sleeping. So her mother's bed was in the same room as Victoria's for the first 18 years of her life, which must have been quite difficult as a, you know, especially a teenager when you just want to be alone. Um, Some of the other rules, of course, were that she couldn't go up or down a staircase without holding someone's hand. So I tend to refer to this as very early helicopter parenting going on. Um, But again, you can see how they are looking after her safety. Um, They even regulated, of course, the type of food she could eat, her diet. Um, And they specifically mentioned that only the good candles can be used for Victoria um, and one of the other royal uh, residents here at Kensington. I love uh, rule number nine. The princess will become the nation's hope popular in the public eye. So this was... She, her entire life, she was being geared up to be queen, wasn't she? 
Absolutely, yeah. Um, we have um, lots of records of Victoria's day-to-day -day life um, because of her own diaries and journals that she kept, but also those of her uh, governess, Baroness Leitzen, and her mother's and Conroy's letters. Um, and we have a record of um, Leitzen kind of reminiscing when Victoria first learned that she was going to become queen. And her first thought was, well, I shall be good. It must have been an incredibly oppressive life. It's the, it's, it's the great paradox of particularly in this era, royal life is it's seen of such a life of such privilege and wealth and fame and status. But at the same time, look at these archaic rules that she's not even allowed peace and quiet in her own home. It must have been a terrible contradiction for, for people to grow up in this environment. Yes, as you say, she was quite privileged, of course. Not everyone else could afford to eat boiled mutton every day, um, even if Victoria did get bored of it. Um, but we do, again, have records of Victoria starting to act out, starting to rebel against that, yeah, quite oppressive um, system of rules. She had to write down, basically in a behavior book, what her behavior was each day. And on many, many occasions, we have her writing very, very, very horribly naughty. Um, so she was quite honest with herself. And you see that self-reflective instinct and that self-censoring instinct continue throughout her life. She seems quite a character. Do you feel that in your time here, you've gotten to know her on a personal level? Definitely. Um, yeah, she's always this huge, iconic figure, you know, Queen Victoria. Um, and we tend to think of her mostly when she is older, the, you know, the woman in mourning, dressed in black. Um, but I really love this exhibition because it shows her as this bright young woman, very precocious um, and really excited. She just wants to do as best as she can for her country. Meredith, I'm looking at some books here with um, handwriting in them. And, and the tag says these are her exercise books. So we're looking at actual actual words written on the page by Queen Victoria. Well, the future Queen Victoria. Yes. So again, this is her as quite a young girl, again, around the age of eight years old, practicing her penmanship, um, her cursive writing, which is, again, one of those lost arts. Um, and she has gorgeous handwriting, as we can see. Um, so you can see she really had a command of, of the pen, of the, um, the stencil, any kind of writing implements she was working with. She was also trained a lot in um, languages. Um, so she was growing up with a German mother, a German governess, so she could speak German quite well, um, was never completely fluent though, and then she would practice French um, with some of her other relatives across Europe. I'm really enjoying this aspect of, of getting to know, as you said earlier, the, the young Victoria, because there's so many human elements in here. There's so many, uh, you know, here she is doing her homework yeah. at her desk. Here she is, you know, preparing what she's going to be doing during the day. It's, it's really a wonderful insight into, as you say, a historic figure that we only see in these very two-dimensional terms. It's really, it's really very well done. Yeah, and we're hoping, you know, younger visitors will connect to that as well, seeing her as this young girl who then, of course, grows up to become queen. Um, but hopefully they can see a little bit of themselves in her, relate to that story of, yeah, she was annoyed with having to do her homework too. I note that as well on the, uh, on the labelling here. Imagine doing all your homework on a desk like this. Yes. It's great to engage with, uh, with the younger people that come through. It's just, uh, it's really well done. So this next room is all about Victoria's love of going to the theatre, the ballet, the opera especially. Um, so every once in a while her mother would accompany her or her governess um, and they would go and see the latest show. Um, Victoria had her favourite prima ballerinas, favourite prima donna singers as well. Um, but we know that her all-time favourite opera was I Puritani. Um, so we do have a small puppet show doing a reenactment of highlights from the third act of I Puritani. Um, she went to see it several several times but we do know that she was quite notorious for showing up a little bit late to the performances but she really enjoyed them that's surely a princess's prerogative yes fashionably late all the time <laughs>
Meredith, this is an incredibly bright and bold room. This, is this something that's been enhanced for current, uh, current generation or is this how it would have looked in Victoria's day? It would have looked very similar to this at the time. Um, I know we tend to think of you know Victorian style as one thing. This would have been late Georgian style um, and they did favour quite bold colours sometimes. Um, red was a really popular background for interiors, especially if you wanted to show off your sculpture collection um, because the contrast between the you know pure white classical marble versus the bright red background um, provided really nice visual contrast. Um, but we're pretty certain this room was this kind of bright red. Um, they would have had the blinds open all day as well, so really bright, um, warm room, whereas the rest of the rooms tend to be more on the green, white, gray palette. Um, so that room was probably quite a special um, lounge or sitting room for them. And do we know with things like the magnificent carpet, do we know that that's fairly accurate to what would have been on the, on the, on the floors at the time? Yes. So again, they, the curators researched what the designs would have been um, and had them reproduced um, to either similar designs from that era, um, sometimes from other historic properties as well. Really just a wonderful room. It's, uh, it's bold, it's bright, but uh, it's really uh, unexpected, but really lovely at the same time. Yeah, I think it conjures up that sense of the opera, of the theatre as well, that red velvet curtain coming down. So it definitely gives a sense of drama. We've left the bold red room behind us. We've come into a room um, quite soft in its design, much softer than the, than the bright red room. Beautiful greens and, again, a lovely but quite different carpet to the previous room. Where are we standing now, Meredith? This room is quite a significant room for Victoria. Um, again, probably would have been just a meeting room, a lounge room. Um, we know it was also used almost as a study as well. Um, but this is the room where she found out she became queen. Um, now, her uncle was king at the time. That was William IV. We've got his portrait just over here. Um, but he was quite ill. Um, but he died in the middle of the night on the 20th of June, 1837, um, out at Windsor Castle. And he had no surviving uh, legitimate heirs. So Victoria was next in line. Um, two messengers, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Lord Chamberlain, hopped on horses and rode here as fast as they could to deliver the news to her. Because, um, you know, the news can only travel as fast as you can in those days. Um, so they arrive downstairs, um, and a servant answers the door. It's like the crack of dawn. And they ask to speak with Victoria alone. But that breaks one of the rules of the Kensington system. She can't be alone. So the servant goes and gets her mother instead. And the mother says, oh, okay, yeah, come in, come in. Sorry, Victoria's busy or asleep. And the messengers say, we must speak with her. You have to let us speak with her. Victoria's mother, very reluctantly, then goes upstairs to her bedroom to wake her. Um, she comes down that staircase just through there, holding her mother's hand. Remember, another one of the rules. Um, she then rounds the corner, comes into this room here. When the two messengers see her, they both drop to one knee and say, Your Majesty. So that's how she knows, just in, with that one gesture, that she is now queen. How old was she at the time? She had just turned 18 uh, the month previously. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So one of the iconic moments of British and indeed world history took place in the corner of the room where we're standing right here. It's, it's amazing. I mean, it's what... It's what I love about my job is getting to stand in these places. It must be extraordinary for you every day to be walking these halls and you know with the ghosts of the uh, of, of some of the most famous people in history. Absolutely, it's one of the best parts of this job. It's quite humbling as well, um, just knowing that yeah, you're walking in the footsteps of queens here, really history where it happened. And some magnificent portraits in this room as well, uh, works of art, portraits of noblemen and, and women. Just a, a lovely room all around. Yes, yeah, so we've got portraits of William the Fourth and his wife Adelaide, just to um, reinforce, you know, obviously the connection between Victoria and him. Um, that was also really significant that she had just turned eighteen, because. Um, her mother, the Duchess, and William famously did not get along, um, so much so that at one point, William had invited Victoria and her mother, surprisingly, to his birthday ball out at Windsor um, when Victoria was around 16 or 17. And um, he stood up in the middle of the dinner, and everyone thought he was going to make a toast or a speech. Instead, he vowed before everyone, before God, that he would linger on through his illness until Victoria turned 18, just despite her mother. Because her mother and Conroy's one wish was that William would die before Victoria turned 18 because that meant she could, they could rule as her regents. So the fact that Victoria had just turned 18 meant that William did it, he stuck to his word, um, and that Victoria then could just become queen in her own right. What a wonderful story. And we're standing in front of the portrait of Queen Adelaide and there's so many connections to Australia, of course, as well. The, the state of Victoria, named after Queen Victoria. The city of Adelaide, named after Queen Adelaide. It's, uh, it's fascinating to be standing here where these, these bonds that stretch across the oceans were first formed centuries ago. It's just a really extraordinary place. Absolutely. Yeah, just um, I love seeing when visitors make those connections themselves, they come and see the names of the monarchs or, um, you know, other famous people connected with the place and say, oh, that's just, you know, named after my hometown or, oh, I know that name from this. And you can see them making those connections um, and really relating to it. You know, the, the idea that nothing's really changed. We're quite similar. We're quite the same from these people hundreds of years ago. It's really quite humbling. And you touched on the point before, but Victoria has an entire era named after her, the Victorian era, and to be able to come here and um, and to humanise her and to see her as a person is really quite a. It's almost a confronting feeling. We, in my in, in my impression, is that through history we have these ideas of these iconic figures as somehow not human. They just they're representative of an era and nobility and royalty. And here we see her as a little girl. We see her as I'm sure in a quite overwhelmed to learn she'd become queen, taking place in this very room. Yeah, um, just the sense, too, of her as a young girl kind of growing up with the usual teenage angst. But as you say, you know, compounded on top of that, the knowledge that she has to become queen, um, the sense of duty that she has um, to want to be a good queen, a good ruler to help her people, um, you know, also coming from maybe a family history of quite tumultuous monarchs, slightly unpopular monarchs. George IV and William IV weren't the most popular um, kings. So she really had this sense of um, trying to 
um, rise above what her maybe predecessors hadn't been able to um, accomplish. Just before we leave this room, Meredith, I see there's a gorgeous young child's dress over in the corner. I, I assume this was associated with Victoria as well. Yes, so we have several items of dress that she wore. Um, we really just wanted to give a sense of just how petite she was. Um, so she would have worn this when she was 12 years old, and it looks like it might fit a five- or six-year-old. Um, it was a gift from her uncle, um, so that was um, King Leopold um, of the Belgians, um, and it's just this beautiful silk and lace um, design. We also have a reproduction of a painting just behind of her wearing it, so you can see her as a young girl. Um, and it's really lovely just seeing, you know, the quality of the craftsmanship of these items that she was wearing. It's a wonderful item. The, the, the lace work is incredible. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised the, the clothes that were given to the future queen, but um, just what an extraordinary little piece of history. Meredith, we've left behind us the sort of the living and the staterooms, and we're in a bedroom now, but it's not a bedroom I think too many of us would recognize. Uh, what's this room we're standing in now? This room is very significant in Victoria's story because it is where she was born on the 24th of May, 1819. Um, now, her mother and her father had recently just returned from um, abroad. They're on the continent, but they wanted to make sure that their child was born on English soil because they knew it was very likely going to become the heir um, to the throne. Now, this room was originally the dining room, actually, in this suite of apartments um, because it had quick access down to the kitchens through those back servant doors. So when the time came, Victoria's mother was in labor. They then converted this room into the birth room specifically for that reason. So the midwives um, could have access to fresh water. Without going into too much gory detail, are there records of what a sort of an early 19th century royal birth was like in a room such as this one? Um, it would have been, you know, quite painful. Um, they just didn't have the same kind of medical knowledge, access to um, painkillers, any kind of relief that we'd have today. But Victoria's birth was significant because it was attended by one of the first female gynecologists. Um, she was a German specialist who Victoria's mother wanted here specifically for this birth to come and help. Um, and she was, you know, incredibly knowledgeable, really helped Victoria's mother through the birth. Um, she then also went back to Germany and was present at the birth of Albert as well. So that late, uh, gynecologist was very significant. And this room is now configured as it would have been when Victoria was a baby in the sleeping in that little, well, very elaborate cot uh, over next to the bed. It is probably one of the most elaborate bassinets you'll ever see. Quite cozy for her. Um, beautiful green drapery coming over it. Um, and I love we've got the chair just next to it. So for whoever was attending her, could very sweetly rock her back to sleep. Um, but they did then turn this room back into the dining room um, and then used one of the other rooms as the actual bedroom. So this room is a recreation of Victoria's 17th birthday ball. Um, it was pretty much around the first time she met Albert, um, as well as his older brother, Ernst. Um, now, they were first cousins from her mother's side. So her mother's brother um, had these two sons. They were raised in Germany, um, again, had really good education. Um, Albert went to university um, and then went on grand tours in Italy um, around um, the continent there. So he had an, a really incredible education and was known for being quite bookish, quite nerdy 
Um, whereas his brother Ernst was a little more sporty, a little more outgoing, but they were hoping Victoria would choose one of them to be her husband. Um, now she gravitated naturally more towards Albert. Um, he was a little more shy, but really quite sweet, quite considerate. Um, and while he wasn't as much of a fan of dancing as Victoria would have liked him to be, they had a really lovely time. Um, and this then eventually led to them getting engaged. But fun fact, Victoria actually proposed to him because she outranked him. So this is the room where Victoria and Albert first met? Um, they first met on the staircase just outside. So they had a quite sweet Romeo and Juliet moment on the balcony there. Um, but this is the room where they first danced and probably those first sparks really flew. Because it is one of the world's great love stories, Victoria and Albert, yet from the way you describe it, it was almost an arranged marriage. In a sense, yes. I think her mother was hoping to you know, keep those ties with the German side of her family, um, but Albert was just seen as quite a good match um, because they didn't you know, get on as well with Victoria's father's side of the family. Um, so yeah, they were hoping she, she would go for either Ernst or Albert. And what do we know about Albert in terms of his personality? What was he like? Did he enjoy being married to the Queen? How much do we know about Albert? He was really quite a sweet man, um, really doted on Victoria, tried to take care of her as much as he could. Um, he also defended her quite a bit and standing up to her mother, standing up to the Baroness Slateson, who he saw as quite, you know, controversially um, influential on Victoria in a negative way. Um, so he was really kind of Victoria's champion, trying to get her to stand up for herself. He was really intelligent um, and was quite focused on the welfare of the people. So trying to improve life um, for people who are less well off. Um, he also was really involved in all the new um, ed adventures in um, arts and science. And he then, of course, championed the Great Exhibition in 1851. And good-looking young bloke, too, was standing in front of, again, another magnificent bust and... Um yeah, a good-looking young chap as well. Yes, so this bust is Albert um, as a young man, um, probably in his prime, definitely, the very romantic swoosh of hair there. Um, Victoria described him in her journals as having very fine mustachios and a sweet mouth and very good teeth. Just what you want in a, uh, in a prospective husband. Meredith, you've just pointed out as we walk out of the room that there is a bust over in the corner, a rather smaller one than the one of Albert, and I never would have picked it, but it's supposedly the Duke of Wellington. It is, yes. So he was, you know, quite active still in politics in the uh, royal circles when Victoria was growing up. Um, it would have also been, of course, important to have a bust of him showing your support for him. Of course, his victory at Waterloo. Um, he was also uh, infamously present at that birthday uh, celebration for William when he stood up and made that declaration, essentially insulting the Duchess of Kent. Um, we know about this because he then wrote about it in a letter to a friend later on. He was a man of few words. He summed the event up in just two words, damned awkward. Meredith, we've walked into uh, yet another striking room with uh, the dark velvet drapes and, and, a, and a large dining table in the middle and a, a depiction on the dining table of what appears to be Victoria surrounded by a very serious looking gentleman. What, what, uh, what happened in this room and what's being depicted on this model? So this room is one of the other most significant rooms here at Kensington for Victoria. This is where she had her first Privy Council meeting um, again, that same morning, she found out she'd become queen. So that was all 97 of the privy councillors came to Kensington, um, some of them to meet her for the first time because she hadn't really attended many court or state events. Remember, she's also just turned 18. She's only about 
four foot 11, maybe five feet on a good day. So, it, you know, it could have been really intimidating for her. But uh, many accounts we have from the gentlemen who were there, even Victoria's own accounts, say that she did really well. She was very confident. She was really um, eloquent, impressed everyone. Um, we then know or there's a, a might be apocryphal story of uh, when they finished the meeting. She thanked everyone. They concluded the business. She then withdrew back into the private rooms through there, shut the double doors behind her. And then we think she started to do this little happy dance, this little like skip of girlish glee around the room through there, um, which, again, is just an amazing anecdote because, again, it's showing her as that young woman so excited for the future. Um, But poor Victoria in her excitement forgot that the doors just there at the time were paned in glass. So all 97 of her privy councillors just saw their new sovereign do a little victory dance. Um, But it probably just endeared her to them even more, this young woman who will become their queen and lead them, you know, into this new century of so much change um, and progress. We know Victoria is one of the great monarchs on the British throne. All these rooms tell the story of the preparation for that moment, her, as you said, the Kensington system and the oppressive nature of her upbringing and then we've walked through the rooms where she was informed that she'd become queen at her first meeting. How did the system prepare her? Was she ready as an 18-year-old, as a teenager? Was she ready to take the throne? And, 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 and what sort of job did she do in the early days of being queen? Um, you can see how the Kensington system did prepare her quite well um, in terms of you know the quality of her tutoring, of her education. Um, she had some of the best thinkers of the day coming to help tutor her um in the sense as well they they tried to instill in her that confidence that sense of you know she is the rightful heir this is her rightful place you know in a sense it's her god-given right um so she did have quite a confident streak you could say um that knowledge that this is where she belongs um i think where she then maybe ran into trouble was then asserting her will making sure that what she thought was best actually came to fruition. I think she became quite frustrated when she found that she really didn't have as much power as she thought she might, um, of course, having to work with Parliament, with her Prime Ministers. And probably the focal point of the room is a magnificent, I'm going to say shawl, but I'm not sure that's the correct term for it, but a gold-encrusted article of clothing. I'm doing a terrible job even describing it. Meredith, what am I looking at here? So this is her coronation. um, Dalmatica is the official term, but essentially the coronation robe. Um, She would wear this coming into the ceremony and then they exchanged it for a even larger, even sparklier one. Um, But as you said, it is woven with actual gold thread. Um, So very expensive, very, you know, hard to make. Um, But it's beautifully woven through with um, designs from the different kingdoms of Great Britain. So you've got the rose for England, the shamrock for Ireland, the thistle for Scotland. Um, Sadly, no symbol for Wales, but it's included in there as well. Um, But yeah, just a beautiful um, piece, you know, a real artifact from that huge moment in history when she was crowned that was luckily preserved um, and survives to this day. And was this made just for Victoria for her coronation? It was. It was specially made um, because she was so petite, a new set of essentially regalia um, and the ceremonial collars had to be made for her. Um, also, they were specially designed because the necklines of the dresses at the time were much wider, um, and she just physically couldn't wear the larger ones made for her uncle. So she had this smaller set made for her. It's just an extraordinary thing. Um, one of the most extraordinary things I've seen on this tour in, in, in amongst a whole range of very extraordinary items. It, um, it must give you a thrill every time 
something new is discovered every time something like this is brought out of the archives and put on display. Yes, we're very lucky. Our curators worked really hard on this exhibition. It really was a passion project for them, um, as well as our um, late uh, senior curator, Deirdre Murphy, who passed away last year. But this was, you know, her great dream was to see this exhibition realized and all of these objects on display um, because they often are in storage because they are just so delicate. But we're so lucky they can all be out on display so everyone can come and enjoy them. In the corner, Meredith, are a couple of depictions of the coronation. Very well done. A, a gorgeous painting showing the moment the, the crown is placed on her head and also a, a model over here showing, showing the young Victoria after the coronation. Tell us about these items and, uh, and the significance of them. Yes, yeah, so this painting um, is a really vivid depiction of that event. You can see the moment just as the Archbishop is about to place the crown upon her head. Um, she's surrounded by all of her ladies-in-waiting, um, the Prime Minister's there, of course, all the other members of court, um, the House of Lords, the Privy Council. So it's this really packed full section of Westminster Abbey, um, basically putting us right in the centre of the action. Um, but as you know, stately and perfect as the painting is, apparently the coronation ceremony had a couple of uh, mishaps. Um, so when the Archbishop, I believe it was the Archbishop, was placing the ceremonial ring on her finger, he put it on the wrong finger and it then became stuck. So she struggled to get that off later. Um, and I believe one of the older members of the Houses of Lords took a little tumble down the stairs in the middle of the ceremony, um, but he was unharmed. I love these um, these paintings that, obviously in an era before photography, that we relied on images like this to tell a story. And, and obviously this has been enhanced and modified. It wasn't painted from someone who was standing there and asking everyone to stand still for several hours while he painted it. Um, but uh, they really are quite extraordinary as as items that just capture these these important moments in history. And this is a really wonderful example of that. Yes, Victoria is especially interesting in that regard because when she's first born, obviously it's still painted and sculpted depictions. But during her reign, you have the invention of photography and early video as well as audio recording. Um, so you then see her in photographs, very early photographs. Um, and then at the very end of her reign, actual video footage still survives of her. So just the amazing um, technological advancement during her rain means we get to see her in all these different media. I wonder how much artistic license was taken because I assume when someone was painting a royal they were fairly generous with them. We've seen the famous depictions of Henry VIII etc uh, and I wonder uh, I wonder how much of a shock that was to the people to actually see the the difference between the uh, the painted impression and the, and the, and the photographs. Yes, yeah, the photographs are, of course, a little more uh, unforgiving just because they're that much more accurate. Um, we do know that it definitely, as you said earlier, monarchs would ask the painter to perhaps, uh, re- you know, um, remove certain uh, parts of their features or enhance other parts. Um, with Victoria, we know she did become a little bit more self-conscious of her image later on, um, but she was very aware, of course, of the power of her image um, and the sense of stability it gave people, even throughout the course of that almost century she was on the throne um so when you see her wearing black almost the exact same outfit and the same white lace widow's cap later in her reign um it it gives that sense of kind of continuity um and reinforces that sense of the tradition of that image of the monarch having power but also giving that sense of stability well meredith thank you so much for giving us this rare insight into queen victoria it's just it's it's an extraordinary exhibition and I'd encourage everyone to uh, to come down here and see it because it really is a, a magnificent insight into a chapter of history that's just so important for for not just that period but the modern world as well so thank you so much for your time you're very welcome it's been a pleasure and yeah we hope everyone gets the chance to come and see Kensington Palace and these exhibitions
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.